You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. Anyway, um, so we had to fill all this time. And it was hard because I never saw the video of the explosion at the time until that night. I saw what happened before my eyes. But it wasn't until that night when I finally saw the videotape and I said, my God, it's so obvious what just happened. You know, because it's the picture is so, so close. But at that moment, let's say you rely on the homework you've done and the background that you have and you can speak extemporaneously about it. And you have to keep your emotions in check because nobody wants to hear you falling apart. Uh, because it was shocking and sad and you know so unexpected. So I think I think like all of this lines up. If, if what you experience as a kid that awes you, I think is what sticks with you. So in New England, it's most likely going to be snow. Um, but yeah, for me, I'd say it's snow, tropical weather, and then severe is probably third, partially because I just didn't deal with it very much. I did only at the Weather Channel when they sent me, you know, to Missouri or Oklahoma and. And I also think the violent, destructive nature of that takes some of the fun out of it for me, if that makes any sense. You know, we had gotten a lot of tornado aftermath, and it uh, you, you understand what, what's happening here to these people, so it makes it less uh, interesting, I don't know, to me, because you know what it can do. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 275, Faces of Maine Broadcasting, airing for the first time on Sunday, December 25th, 2016. We depend upon people we trust to give us the news of the day. Today, we speak with two beloved broadcasters who keep us up to speed on what has happened and what is yet to come. Pat Callahan started working at WCSH6 News Center in December 1979. Meteorologist Keith Carson recently returned to WCSH6 after taking a coveted position with the Weather Channel. Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland, easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at Aristel.com. My next guest is well-known, really, to the Maine community. This is Pat Callahan, who started working at WCSH6 News Center in December 1979. He is the co-anchor of the 5 p.m., 6 p.m., and 11 p.m. shows and has been co-anchoring the 6 p.m. newscast with Cindy Williams for 27 years. Wow, you've been around a long time. <laughs> wow, indeed, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> time flies when you're having fun. Well, it does seem like you've had some fun. I can't imagine spending as much time as you have doing what you're doing if you didn't enjoy it in some way. Oh, no. it's uh, One of the great things about it is sometimes it's not like working for a living. A lot of times it is. There's always a routine that you get into, things that have to be done at a certain time. But it's usually something different every day. So while you follow the same pattern or routine, there's something else going on that 
and you think you've seen it all, and you never have. Now, you grew up not in Maine. You grew up in Framingham, outside Boston. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that early path. Did you know from the moment you jumped out of the womb that this is what you wanted to do? I didn't know, but it's not uh, its not surprising that I would have been interested. Uh, my dad worked for a radio and television station, first in western Massachusetts, then in Washington, and then in Boston. And that's when, when I came along. And uh, so, uh, you know, it, it was always something that seemed like an interesting way to make a living to me. And the other part of it was that uh, we had three or four daily newspapers in the house. So when you're a kid, you start out reading the newspaper and you read the comics, and then you read the sports pages, and then eventually you start reading the rest of the paper as well. And in those days in particular, when you had morning and evening editions of papers and a lot of competing papers in a city like Boston, plus the local Framingham paper, you got a lot of different opinions and takes on things. So it teaches you to be a little open-minded about ideas and figure out you know, who's right and who isn't. So uh, I was always interested in the news, and we would watch the newscast. My dad was anchoring sports for a while at the time when the Red Sox were uh, having their impossible dream almost 50 years ago now in 1967. And that was very exciting for a kid who was about 11 years old. That's just the right time. Uh, so that uh, watching him do that was, was pretty interesting. And occasionally we'd go into the station with him. At the time, they were located in Kenmore Square in Boston, not just two blocks away from Fenway Park. So if we'd go to a ball game, we might have to stop by the station for something and, and seeing all the technology stuff. And, on, and also, they had kids' shows in those days. Major Mud was one of them. And they had this science fiction thing called Phantasmic Features. And the host was a guy named Feep. And when you saw the big Feep head on a stand, it's like, ooh, I know that. Anyway, so it always seemed kind of, uh, kind of glamorous and interesting. And in college, I uh, went to the University of New Hampshire and worked for the radio station there mostly as a disc jockey, and I love that because you can play what you want when it's college radio and really express yourself. Uh, but I also started doing news. Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't really study broadcasting as such or c- communications. I studied English and history. So I've always thought that that is a good background for anybody in this line of work because you know a little bit about a lot of things. And it teaches you how to ask questions and how to seek out information and research things. The TV part of it or the radio part, the broadcasting, that's easier to learn than the rest of it. You have to be able to write quickly on deadline and have it come out making sense without laboring over it sometimes. So it's a good background for that. Um, Just to conclude that story, (laughs) which went on forever, I... um, when I graduated, uh, I had several part-time jobs. One was writing for the nightly newscast they used to do at New Hampshire Public Television, which was almost like going to grad school, which I considered doing. But now I'm with people who are out reporting the news in a place where there's a lot of interesting stuff going on because of politics, which I've always loved. So uh, I got to follow the governor's race that year, and uh, it was really interesting to see how it's done how, and and you know, just the whole mechanics of it all. And occasionally they'd let me get on the air to fill in or something, and that was it. I was able to put together a, a tape uh, with some uh, d- demonstration stuff. And when I was looking for a full-time job, I wound up uh, in Bangor at WLBZ. I had applied here in Portland, and they said, well, you're not quite ready for this yet, but we've got another station, and uh, we think you could use some seasoning up there. And they were absolutely right. Uh, so that's where it began. 
And from what I understand, Bill Green helped you out for a little bit of a time when you were in Bangor. He did. Bill was working at LBZ then. He's a Bangor native, so he really knew his way around. Um, he's very friendly, very open. He didn't really know me at all. And the first day I was there, he said, hey, you know, if you need to use my apartment to make phone calls for lo- looking for a place to live. No, so Bill, uh, you know, is the uh, oldest friend I have in Maine, and it's a pleasure that, the, that we're still working together after all this time. And uh, you have this sort of shared heritage, if you will, that we've seen a lot of things come and go over the years, and uh, we'll make jokes about something that some of the younger people have no idea what we're talking about, and just a couple of old fools, but, you know, uh, <laughs> it's uh, it, it's been very nice. And, and the other great thing, Don Carrigan worked at WLBZ at the time, too. And I remember when I first walked in, uh, I saw this reporter, he had a full beard at the time, which I thought was unusual for a television station. I think the reason he had it was he was appearing in a play. He was probably doing Fiddler on the Roof or something, because Don does a lot of community theater and still does. Uh, But you quickly learn this is a guy who knows his way around, and uh, you can learn a lot from him, and I have, and I still feel like I'm learning from him now. But in those days, we had to, I was hired to produce and anchor the 11 o'clock newscast, as well as report. I covered City Hall, all the city council meetings and so forth. So you had to learn how to do a lot of things. We were shooting 16-millimeter film back then, and... um, and there was no no computers or word processors. Everything was done on typewriters, and you had to type your scripts with carbon paper, so you had multiple copies. And uh, to to put the newscast together, you have to assemble a big film reel with each clip of film that you're going to use and make sure they're in the right order. And if you have to drop something for time reasons, you can't just throw the tape aside or anything. You've got to now spool through that piece of film. It seems outrageous. You wonder how you got it done, but you do. And uh, all of it was all part of a great learning experience because you're involved in every aspect of, of producing and reporting. So do you think uh, that there's something that has, uh, th- that's missing now, that people don't have to go through this whole process, or does it not really... No, there's a different kind of multitasking they have to do now. There's a lot more reporters in our shop and others, too, who have to work on their own. If they call multimedia journalists or multi-skilled journalists. They always come up with some, you know, thing you can initialize. But really what it means is that they shoot and write and edit all of their own stuff. In some cases that can be good. I've always thought it's better to have two people do work on a story together because you have someone to bounce ideas off of. Um, especially when you're starting out, you know, it's, it's nice to have somebody to, who sort of knows their way around. In Bangor, for example, it was really helpful of uh, the head photographer there is a guy named Paul Salisbury, a good friend of mine who just passed away a few months ago, but he was from uh, Southwest Harbor area, you know, and so he really spoke the language, and I didn't. You know, I would have I would have looked silly or sounded like someone who didn't know in, what in the world he was talking about to go down there and talk to people if you got to do a story on some fishing thing. And to have somebody who really knows it and knows how to break the ice and get people feeling comfortable was incredibly valuable. Having done this for as many years as you have, I'm guessing that you have a fair sense of um, what's going on in the state, and you have a fair number of contacts. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, in, in the political world, I've, I've covered a lot of these people for a long time. I've covered five governors um, and uh, six U.S. senators over the years, which doesn't seem like a lot, but our the people in Maine, in the Senate in particular, tend to stick around a while. Um, it's been, you know, and I, 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 
I know many of the legislators. I don't get to the state house as much as I used to, uh, which I always really enjoyed. I like the vibe up there. But I, uh, I, I know a lot of those people. And I like to think maybe the more valuable thing is not just the contacts, but the people know who you are, and they have a sense that they can trust you to treat them fairly and get the story right. And if you screw something up, you'll tell them and, and apologize and move on. Uh, so I, you know, I, I, that's what I like to think, that uh, because we have people like myself and Don and Bill and, and a lot of our younger reporters too, but we have a certain level of trust that, that people know what to expect from us. Uh, now, not everybody loves the media, but I think they know they're going to get a fair shake from us. So it sounds like the relationship that you have with people, it's something that is strengthened over time and can actually lead to a really a more valuable um, outcome. Yeah, I, I think that works well for what we're trying to do for people in Maine. I mean, if you think about it, uh, having a news, having a television station is a public trust. You're granted the right to use the public airwaves to make money, but you owe something back. And the way that's been paid back traditionally is through public service programming and news. So the fact that we do so many newscasts, and we even have the magazine show, 207, uh, which is unique in the state and in a lot of places don't have anything like that. So we have an outlet for Mainers to express themselves, whether it's in a news sense or whether it's in an artistic, musical, or theatrical sense. There's a place for all of that. And that's really, it, it's, it's our pleasure to be able to provide that public service, to, to give something to the people of Maine. And I know you mentioned you talked with Keith Carson. Well, weather is a huge part of that. Uh, whenever you do research and ask people what's important to them, severe weather coverage is number one because it's Maine, and they want to know what's going on. So that's why we spend so much time finding the right people and making sure they have the tools they need. Uh, it's all part of, uh, of what we owe the public. I remember uh, WCSH before there was Storm Center. I actually remember when it when it started, and now you all you can't have, be that old. I'm I am that old actually, yes. But I remember how it became like a thing, and I remember at the time I was relatively young, and I was like, really, we have to make this a thing? But over time, it's kind of like got this excitement behind it, like it's Storm Center. We're taking this really seriously. Yeah, those of us who were working there thought it was a bit much too, and that it occasionally still can seem like overkill from our point of view. Uh, but, you know, when, when I was growing up, and maybe you remember part of this too, cancellations were done on the radio. You know, so if it was snowing, you'd get up and you'd turn the radio on to hear if your school was canceled. And that seemed like a radio thing, not a TV thing. But our bosses at the time recognized that, no, we could do this too. Uh, thankfully, we reached the point where we didn't have to read this stuff, that it can all be done with on-screen graphics and um, it, 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 I like that we kind of paved the way for TV stations to do that. Everybody does it now and has for some time, but I really think we were the first ones to break it out and make it a separate thing. And when you hear that music, everybody knows, all right, time to pay attention. Um, and it's, it's actually kind of funny because when uh, we were, the, the stations were owned by the Thompson family for many years since the founding back in the 1920s as radio stations. When they were sold to Gannett, which is now Tegna, when corporate ownership took over, they have a little different idea. They want music packages every in every market to sound the same. They, these are the things you can use. But they did give us the exception that we can still use the Storm Center music because we convinced them this is important. This is how we identify this particular, impor this, uh, particular part of the newscast. 
which is so true because I'm actually like replaying it in my mind even now as <laughs> yeah, you're talking. It's, not, it's an earworm now, and I've cursed you with it. Yeah, thank you so much for that. You could sing it. Would you like to sing it for I us I wouldn't, now? but you know, we had uh, one of our meteorologists, uh, Cliff Michelson, years ago uh, was a pretty good uh, fiddle player, and he would play that sometimes on the air on his violin. And uh, Caroline Cornish, I'm sure, could learn it too, so because uh, she plays violin too. And it's there's nothing like hearing the Storm Center theme on violin, but I can't do that. Okay, well, maybe 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 you will sneak around like next time the storm comes up, yeah, and we'll yeah. see if we can catch you unawares or something. See <laughs> okay. if we can get you to do it like in a in a weak moment. I'm interested in in the news these days because I. I also came from a time I used to deliver both uh, the paper, mm-hmm. you know, when there was a um, Portland Press Herald and there was the Evening Express right. and the Main Sunday Telegram, and and this was really how we got our news. It was radio, and there was the paper, and there was television, and now the news is everywhere all the time, which is great, and it's been sort of democratized. But I also wonder if there's a lack of curation. There's a lack of. It, it seems like. It seems like maybe we don't have the same uh, reflection on what's going on. Yeah, I think some of that comes from the idea that people can and now can just, if they choose, listen to something that reflects the point of view they already hold, uh, something that reinforces what they believe in. And it, it started with cable channels that skewed one political leaning or another, and it continues with social media through Facebook or Twitter or what have you. And so, you know, your news feed on Facebook sort of is tailored toward the things you're interested in. And there's nothing wrong with that except really what you need to do is uh, have a, a broader palette to find information. You know, say if you're if you're someone who's a liberal who only watches MSNBC, you kind of owe it to yourself to spend a couple hours a week watching Fox News just to hear what they're talking about and, and get some sense where are they coming from? Why, why do I disagree with that? And defend your, you know, in, in, internally, if you will. But, you know, you can convince yourself, all right, well, maybe I was wrong. Or, no, I'm more convinced than ever that I was right. But it's true. If, if you're only getting it through social media, and we try to have, a, we have a presence there, of course. It's never quite the same as when it's put together in the newspaper or in a, in a newscast. Now, uh, many would disagree because they think, the, as you call it, the democratization of it is a good thing in that we don't have to just rely on the so-called mainstream media. But mainstream media, at least the way we do it, is something that we feel you can, you can trust to be fair and reliable, that it's research, that you don't just say something and have it unchecked. Everything is vetted that gets on the air. So there's value in that. And, and the other problem with social media, and it, it, it has hurt a lot of media companies, newspapers in particular, is people have developed an idea that news should be free. And free is nice. But journalists, professional journalists who know how to do this craft need to be paid or they can't do it. So if you don't subscribe to a newspaper, uh, you know, you're kind of letting down the community in my eyes that you need to support journalism even if it's a paper you don't always agree with in their editorial slant and you know people say well television is free so it's, well it isn't really we have commercials so that's that's how we pay the bills and the deal is you sit and watch that half hour and you see the sponsor messages and everybody gets something out of it so if you're only getting it from social media and uh, I think you're kind of selling yourself short so why do you think we've come to this place where we believe that um, well-researched, well-written, well, um, 
um, I don't want to say performed, it's not performed, but well-spoken. Presented. Presented, yeah. yes. Information <coughs> is is n- somehow not worthy of getting uh, support. I think it might be generational. Uh, you know, as, as younger people have gotten accustomed to using social media for so many things, uh, they don't really see the distinction. Uh, they And that can be a dangerous thing. If, if you just believe anything that gets tweeted out, without some kind of background check or some kind of verification, um, you know, you may wind up with some ideas that aren't quite right. It's, that's that whole debate that's going on right now after the presidential election of what's fake news and what isn't. And this idea that facts don't matter is sort of frightening uh, because facts are facts. And if you quote somebody saying something, you're not somehow attacking them you're just saying well this is what this person has said before now they're saying this those things don't match up it's worth pointing that out uh, but it, <laughs> it, it takes smarter people than I to figure out how you how you solve that I also wonder about the lack of pause where something is happening but when something's happening it's it's you can't necessarily make a good judgment you can't necessarily um, get the background on it you can't know what the long-term implications and so if you put the news out there as it's happening and that becomes mm-hmm. the report of it without perspective without perspective exactly well it is and, th- and that's that's been changing for a long time and it used to be you know back in the 60s for example you had one newscast in the evening you had a six and then 11 o'clock so the reporters working on the six o'clock news had all day to gather their information, call sources, check out what they had, and put the story together in a thoughtful way. Then you would start adding more newscasts. The deadlines start coming earlier. They come at 5.30, then they come at 5 o'clock. Now deadlines are constant. You're supposed to be posting to the web or social media right away. When you're covering a story, they want you putting out photos or maybe little videos as it's happening. And again, the immediacy is, is good. It gets people interested in the story, but as you point out, if it's done without much consideration of the bigger picture or what it all really means, I'm not sure any of us gain from that. However, that's technology and it's brought us to this point today and we have to learn to make the best of it and be careful not to rush to uh, just to try to be first, to try to be right first. So when the, the TV producer Grant Tinker died last week in his obituary, they talked about one of his mottos when he started running NBC in their entertainment division was, you know, first be best, then be number one, or then be first. So that's, that can apply to us as well. You know, you've got to remind yourself, and I have to remind myself too, well, I've failed at this as well. There are times when you, you rush to get something out first, and it's not quite right or not what you believed it was or just flat out wrong. And when it does, then you apologize and you try to fix it and you move on. And that's at least one thing that the so-called mainstream media does that perhaps others the fake news will not do is that if we get it wrong we'll admit we got it wrong and we'll try to make it right as fast as we can and sometimes others will not do that you are one of the uh, few reporters in the country on air live from the kennedy space center when the space shuttle challenger was destroyed now i remember this i was in geometry class in um, high school and it was a big deal um back then but I wasn't there I just heard about it Mm -hmm. from my teacher who was devastated 
I suspect we all know where we were at that time. Yeah. You were there, though. I was. Yeah, it, it's interesting how that came about, too, uh, because we, uh, I had, in Framingham, where I grew up, I knew the Corrigan family. Uh, they went to the same church we did, and uh, so our families, I didn't know them well, but I knew them enough, and uh, my dad was friends with Krista McAuliffe's dad. Her maiden name was Corrigan. So we, um, you know, I had, I kind of had that little bit of an advantage when I told the news director at the time when uh, she was chosen, uh, Krista McAuliffe, the teacher from Concord, New Hampshire, chosen to be the first teacher in space. I said, "Gee, I really think we should cover this live. It's it's local enough. New Hampshire is right there, and." I might have oversold the connection that I had to the family, but not by much. I said, oh, yeah, this, really, this is going to be a great story. And, and he bought into it and said, yeah, we, we, we should go cover that. And uh, it, the launch was delayed several times for various technical reasons. It was also very cold there. In fact, some of the uh, Florida reporters blamed those of us coming from New England for bringing the cold with us. We really weren't prepared for that, we you know didn't have hadn't brought winter gear or anything. You'd go to a Sears down there and try to buy some winter gloves. They don't have them, <laughs> you know. So we, um, uh, while we were covering the launch, <clears throat> excuse me, we there was a press grandstand and there was a VIP grandstand. So the photographer I was with was down by the VIP section shooting video. There was uh, in the Teacher in Space program, if you recall, there were two teachers chosen from every state to be the finalists and. And one of the teachers from Maine was making the trip to watch the launch, a guy named Gordon Corbett from Yarmouth. Who was also my teacher. Oh, well, there you go. So then you know exactly what I'm talking about. So Gordon was there, and uh, as part of the story, we wanted to see his reaction to the flight. And we were, everyone, of course, expecting it's going to be jubilant. It's going to be great. So this was the big payoff at last. And so when the launch happened and when the explosion happened, for those of us who'd never seen one of these things in person, it looked wrong, but you figure, well... Maybe that's what it looks like in person. Uh, you know, I don't know. And then it, when it got so quiet, you weren't hearing the chatter on the radio anymore. It's suddenly, okay, there's, there's really a problem here. And what your hope was that we'd seen all the briefings about ways they could, uh, they could have a return to launch site abort. You know, if, uh, if something was going wrong, they could separate the orbiter and land. And you're hoping, well, gee, we hope that's what it is. But I was sitting near a, another reporter, a guy from Florida Today newspaper, uh, who actually lives in Maine again. His name is Chet Lunner. And uh, he said, uh, I could see, I was sitting right next to him, and he said, no, this is bad. This is, you know. And, and we were, and because we're on the air live, I was actually on the phone. We were showing the pictures from the NASA Select Satellite. But I was on a telephone, and uh, we had Patsy Wiggins in the studio sort of anchoring the coverage. You had to be careful not to say what you didn't know. You needed to say something, but you can't say, oh, crap. They're going to be dead because you didn't know that. But in the back of your mind, you figure, you know, it, it doesn't seem everything we've heard about what this really means is there is no no real escape from this. And uh, so you start calling on your your background knowledge. And this is where homework comes in so that I knew a lot about the space program. Of course, having grown up while it was the big moonshot race and everything, and I remembered Apollo 13. This was before the movie was made or anything, but I remembered all of that. I was able to talk a little bit about, well, there have been accidents before, and they've been able to improvise and survive it. And you end up filling time, and we were on the air off and on. NBC hadn't cut in yet, because they weren't covering it live. The space shuttle program had gotten so routine, the networks weren't covering it. I think CNN was, because that was their job. 
And the station in Manchester was, because it was a New Hampshire story. I think Channel 13 might have been as well, because they had a reporter there. Anyway, um, so we had to fill all this time. And it was hard, because I never saw the video of the explosion at the time, until that night. I saw what happened before my eyes. But it wasn't until that night when I finally saw the videotape, and I said, my God, it's so obvious what just happened, you know, because the picture is so, so close. But at that moment, let's say you rely on the homework you've done and the background that you have, and you can speak extemporaneously about it. And you have to keep your emotions in check because nobody wants to hear you falling apart uh, because it was shocking and sad and, you know, so unexpected. And so you don't really think about that till you're done with the job for the day. And, um, and that, that, that carries through into anything you cover, really. Yeah, there's so, there are times when the news is so tragically sad, um, you know, little kids with cancer or whatever it is. And, you know, you can't get so wrapped up in it that, that you're falling apart. Really, people are looking for someone to, you know, tell us about it and, you know, <laughs> kind of keep a cool head. So that's what I try to do. Do you ever think of yourself as being um, an important part of people's daily lives? Do you ever think of yourself as, oh, I'm, I'm sitting down to dinner with people and, you know, I'm one of the last things they see before they go to sleep? Or it, That sort of thing occurs to you when you meet them and they'll tell you. Like we, did the, we just recently did the annual Coats for Kids drive. So we all go out to various locations, the supermarkets, where we collect the coats and the toys. And so that's a chance to meet a lot of people. They know you're going to be there, so they come by and, and you, ha- you chat with them. And so we watch you all the time. You know, we, we just, we've been seeing you for so many years. That's when you think about it. If you spent every day walking around thinking about that, it would be pretty ridiculous. You know, you'd get a big head for no reason. And I, when I introduce myself to people, they sometimes will say, oh, well, you know who you are. He says, well, I, I assume nothing. You take nothing for granted because not everybody does. Um, and you kind of have to look at it that way. Uh, if you've, as I say, if you've, if you've walked around all the time thinking how important you are, that, that's not a good way to live your life. Well, I appreciate you're taking the time to uh, switch back to your, to your radio presence, to your radio persona, and coming in and having a conversation with me today. I've been speaking with Pat Callahan, who started working at WCSH 6 News Center in December 1979. And certainly your station has been a part of my growing up in the state of Maine, so I thank you for all the work that you do, and I appreciate your being here. Well, I thank you and everybody else for caring and, uh, and keeping, us, keeping us employed. <laughs> Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by The Front Room, The Corner Room, The Grill Room, and Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Chef Harding Lee Smith's restaurants where atmosphere, great service, and palate-pleasing options are available to suit any culinary mood. For more information, go to theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Nancy Simmons, Elizabeth Hoy, and many more. For complete show details, please visit our website, artcollectormaine.com. So today I get to do something that I've always wanted to do, which is to interview someone who does um, something really interesting on the air with uh, weather. This is Keith Carson, and with 10 years of media experience, meteorologist Keith Carson has covered everything from tornado aftermath in Oklahoma to blizzards in Chicago. 
a native New Englander, Keith leveraged social media and on-air presentation to reach the Weather Channel at the age of 30. Now he has returned to WCSH-TV in Portland, where he is spearheading a new level of online and live reporting presence for the top-rated local news station. Welcome back to Maine. Well, thank you. Uh, great time of year to come. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> but you're, you're a Massachusetts native originally. Right. So I spent most of my life living in New England one way or another from Massachusetts, went to school in Vermont, and then took a job in uh, Vermont as well. So I have had this cold weather experience most of my life. So I'm interested in why one decides to study the weather. I'm sure this is not the first time you've been asked this question. No, and you know, I think for most people that you ask this question, not just on-air meteorologists, there's a lot of meteorologists behind the scenes. It starts at a young age. So for me, it was the blizzard of 1993. I was 10. So if you're good at math, you can quickly figure out how old I am. But that was a thing for me. It was a huge superstorm all the way from Georgia up into New England. It was a big snowstorm here. And I just remember standing in the driveway and just, I don't know, being, being obsessed with the level of snow we were getting. And then it kind of rolled from there. And my parents, uh, you know, saw this, started bringing me into TV stations to get the tours. I spent some time in Mount Washington in high school as a, as a volunteer. So they were very supportive of the idea of do something you like. And I, it never stopped being what I liked. Um, so that's kind of how I ended up studying it. And what is the educational background of someone who is a meteorologist? Well, it's a four-year degree. Um, it's a, basically, it's mainly physics and uh, calculus. That's, that's the base of it. So for the first two years of most meteorology programs, um, you're doing just... So if you wanted to switch and be an engineer your junior year, it's not a huge departure. It's that, it's that kind of stuff. And then you get into the actual forecasting classes, usually junior and senior year. Um, so because of that, a lot of people go in, they love the weather, and they drop out of meteorology because they don't realize how heavy it is on, on this kind of stuff. I, I believe my class at Linden State, which was in Vermont, there was a 60-something attrition rate, 60%, because people just didn't like how they had to get to the degree. Right, that makes sense. When you decided to go um, to college for meteorology, were you were you certain that this was your path? Were you certain that you wanted to, to do this and do it on air? Or was this something that you thought, well, I like science, I like the weather, let's see how it goes? Um, I mean, I was hoping it was because I was actually someone who naturally is better at the verbal side of things. For example, you know, when I'm going to look at colleges, my SATs were much better in verbal than math. So I was kind of going into a weak zone for myself. Um, I knew I wanted to do weather. I think everybody at a young age looks at the TV side and that's all they know about. Um, but I was open to other paths. In fact, I, for two years, I did behind the scenes forecasting. Um, but I think at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, that was the only thing that got me through classes like thermodynamics is the idea that I really wanted to do this because there were easier and, uh, you know, majors that I could have delved into. Um, and I, I just never did that. That's similar to me with medical school and having to make it through things like calculus, which was definitely not my strong suit, but all doctors have to have some level of calculus and right. physics, actually. So you kind of just have to have your eyes on the prize and keep moving forward because otherwise you could get really bogged down and, I guess, questioning yourself and right. the direction you're taking. Usually things that you want to do aren't easy. And, and you know, physics, I don't know how, what your experience was. I enjoyed the first probably course and a half of physics because of the theory behind a lot of it. And then it gets kind of into the weeds after that. And I found by, I, my, I think the last one I had to do was physics four. And I remember just being like, you know what? 
I'm just gonna I'm gonna get by. I'm not sure I entirely understand everything that's happening here, but um, you know the idea in meteorology is that it's they're giving you the background for what the computer models are doing as supercomputers to try to give you an understanding of it. Like a lot of things in you know in college. Do I have to do those physics in a real-world setting? Not really, but the idea is that you have some sort of background there. You know? Yeah, and I, and I think that that's, and I think that's actually what happened in, in with medical school. There's yep. a lot of stuff that I have never ever used again. I right. could probably go back and figure it out if I went way back in my memory banks, but yep. I just don't. I don't really need it. But if you didn't have it, you wouldn't have kind of the vocabulary around what you're doing. Right. Yep. So you are. Um, so you went up to Vermont. And you've been here in Maine, but you also spent some time down in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what happened there was I was pretty happy here at uh, Channel 6 in Portland, and uh, I had been there three years. So we work under contract, most people on TV. So, you know, in my case, it was a two-year contract, and then I signed a one-year extension. So we're coming up to the end of that, and I'm trying to decide what to do. Now, part of me, you're always looking because you don't know what the – station's going to do anyways. I had a pretty good idea that they were going to retain me, but at the time, Joe Cooper was still there, Kevin Mannix was still there. Here are two guys that have been here forever. So I just looked and said, well, what's the, you know, I might, I might stay on weekend mornings for a long time, and lifestyle-wise, I'm not sure that's for me. So I started to kind of poke around, but I was pretty set on the idea of coming back to Channel 6, or I was going to stay at Channel 6, and then I got this email <clears throat> out of the blue from the president of the Weather Channel, and it was, I still remember because it was a specific day, it was Valentine's Day, and it was extremely casual. It just said, hey, it's David Clark, president of the Weather Channel, I've seen your stuff, I'd, I'd like to talk to you. And so my first reaction was my friends were just being jerks. I was like, can you fake a weather.com email address? Is that something that you can do? Uh, but long story short, you know, I went back to Channel 6, we talked, and, and, and the basic feeling around the office, including the general manager, was, hey, we'll do what we can to, to keep you, but we really think you probably should take this anyways. It's, it's the equivalent of, you know, if a reporter gets a call from CNN, like you go to the Weather Channel and you do that whole thing. Um, so we moved south for three years. Well, contrast the, the two jobs for me. What was it like to be, say, at WCSH and then at the Weather Channel? What was that like? Well, so, you know, in local... I do the forecast, I make the graphics, I get up and present it. Usually you have three to four minutes. At the Weather Channel, some they have other people doing the forecast. They have this whole group of scientists that does it. They push it to the app that everybody has. It all goes to the same place to make sure it's uniform. They don't want people on TV giving you a different forecast than their app says. So same data center. So I don't forecast anymore. I don't make graphics anymore either. We have about 15 people who their job is to make really good looking weather graphics. So Essentially, I became a host. Um, so I'd come in with professional makeup, which is unusual in most you know, markets. You go in, you read some, some scripts that have been written, and you still do the weather, but it's not, it's not yours. Um, so I had to learn how to become a host, which was new. I had never read teleprompter. Um, I never really interviewed people. So you know, if you were to watch the first couple of months of tape, it was probably not great because I didn't know how to interview people. And we were interviewing sometimes fairly big people. You know, we would have, I remember we had uh, Drew Brees on one time. And I'm like, am I the guy that really should be interviewing this, this person? I don't know what I'm doing. So I, but I learned. So I became a better host. But as far as the, the control, like the weather person in me, it's a little hard to have somebody else. And they're very good somebody else's. Um, 
do but do the forecast so so you lose some you lose some control over that whole aspect and then when you decided to come back here to portland you've only been back for a few months is that right right yeah so you know what happened there was basically i knew the news director from last time and we started kind of you know in today's day and age very formal texting uh, about hey is, you know is it a possibility that we could come back and and i was weighing other options and some of them had us moving to california and so we were probably going to move because we felt like long term that job wasn't for me um, as great as the people were and i was happy to have them try to retain me but i just felt like it wasn't probably for me long term uh it, essentially we went back and forth for a couple months and and didn't we didn't think it was going to get done we thought you know we're pretty the weather team's pretty stacked over there right now we have todd gartner who used to be a chief in boston we have um tom johnson who used to be down in jacksonville so you have all these technically higher market kind of guys in this mid-market place so it just seemed like maybe it wasn't going to happen um but they came up with something and we started talking about schedule and making it a good lifestyle move. That was the big thing for me is um, if I'm going to come here, let's make it really nice. There aren't many good shifts in television. So let's make this one of them where I'm working not early and not late and, and kind of in sync with my wife's schedule. And that would be a big benefit to coming back here. What does your wife do? She's uh, public relations. So she works a normal when we're in Atlanta. She worked at uh, this university called Kennesaw State, which was actually about 30,000 undergrads, and she was doing uh, PR for them. So she had very, what I called, state hours. So she would be, you know, she'd be back at 4.30 or whatever, and I was working all kinds of crazy shifts. Um, so we were just thinking going forward, she was going to have a normal schedule. She has for years. And I've never had one. I've either worked weekend mornings or weekend nights or at the Weather Channel, you know, I worked eight or nine different schedules over the course of three years. Um, so that was starting to become a point where we're like, okay, we got to figure out a way to make this not so dissimilar. We don't have children right now, but, you know, if we did, this whole thing doesn't fit. It seems like uh, pe- people like Joe Cupo, Kevin Mannix, um, lots of, actually, lots of newscasters in this area. There's some people that are in this particular market who stay for literally decades because <laughs> I remember them from when I was young. Yeah. And that's different than, I think, many other markets. No, yeah, it is. Um, so Cupo, I think, retired with 37 or 38 years. It was the only job he's ever had. Um, and, you know, Pat Callahan and Cindy Williams, they're still, they're there. And I don't see them leaving. I mean, they're, you know, they're not that old, first of all. And they're going to retire there. That's the plan. Um, I think it's Maine. I mean, I think um, the station is great to work for. That is a plus. And being a dominant number one does make your life easier because no one's trying to accomplish that much. Um, in that, I mean that in the best possible way. Like, they're trying to do good stuff, but they're not trying to catch anyone. And if you're in a second or third place station, it's a different environment. It's, what can we do to undercut these guys? But And, and that's just not the case at Channel 6, and it hasn't been since I've been there. But I really think, ultimately, it's Maine. I mean, I think um, people fall in love with it and don't want to leave. And most of the people who are long-tenured, except for Mannix, are not actually from Maine. That's what's interesting. Like, Kupo you know, is from uh, New York, and he still had a New York accent 37 years later, which I always gave him a hard time about. How did you not lose this in this period of time? But but they fall in love with the state, and then they find the job that they like, and they say, there's really no point in leaving. You know, what's, what, what am I going to get out of it? And I think when I decided to leave, 
there was a little smirk and a we might see you again uh, kind of um, situation. And they were right. Well, I'm, I'm guessing that the, the weather itself, like the actual weather around outside, may not be quite as um, diverse as the New England weather that, you, that kind of got you into this. Right. And, you know, it's funny. So when we moved to Atlanta for the job, our biggest concern was, are we going to like Georgia? And I figured, definitely love the job. And, and so life never stacks up the way you think. We actually came to like Georgia. Um, it has seasons. That's the biggest thing for me. I, I don't think I could do a Florida thing, especially Central and Southern Florida, where really there are very little variations. But the thing about Georgia that's interesting is that people don't realize if you haven't spent much time there, like they have fall foliage. It just so happens that it's in November, you know. It's later. And they have winter, and it may mean they average, what, two or three inches of snow a year. But it's just, for me, it was just enough of seasons to keep it interesting. And what you add to it is more severe weather. You know, I remember the first time a tornado siren went off in our neighborhood. My wife's like, whoa, like, what do we do about this? You know, um, luckily the answer was me looking at the radar and saying nothing. But, you know, it's a, it's a new experience. So you add, you do add the tornado threat to, to it. Um, but there are a lot of hardcore meteorologists who couldn't step away from big snowstorms because that's what they that's what they love you know particularly in, in new england so it seems like I, i've heard of people who are like tornado chasers it, it seems like there are certain types of weather that appeal to different people mm -hmm. if that's true what's your favorite kind of weather you know i do like a good snowstorm um but tropics also interest me, um, I think because of their how long you're watching these storms and obviously the magnitude of impact they can have. Even the worst snowstorms do not do what, you know, a Category 3 or 4 hurricane does. Um, and I mean, this one right now, this, 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 this storm we're watching right now. And I think those, those two things interest me. I think the passion comes from where you're from. So we had hurricane experts at the Weather Channel. That's what they did. And our main hurricane guy was from New Orleans. So it would make sense that was his passion, right? He was from New Orleans. And uh, our severe weather uh, people, one of them was from Georgia. So I think it's what you grow up with and what catches your attention. And then our winter weather expert is from Buffalo. So I think, I think like all of this lines up. If, you, if what you experience as a kid that awes you, I think is what sticks with you. So in New England, it's most likely going to be snow. Um, but yeah, for me, I'd say it's snow, tropical weather, and then severe is probably third, partially because I just didn't deal with it very much. I did only at the Weather Channel when they sent me, you know, to Missouri or Oklahoma. And, and I also think the violent, destructive nature of that takes some of the fun out of it for me, if that makes any sense. You know, we had gotten a lot of tornado aftermath and it, uh, you, you understand what, what's happening here to these people, so it makes it less uh, interesting, I don't know, to me, because you know what it can do. Yeah, I would think that would be really hard that you can say, oh, that's so fascinating that this, this phenomenon has occurred, something that I've studied all this time. But then if you're on the ground and you're seeing, like, smashed houses and right. people that don't have water or electricity, I mean, there's something very kind of real about that. It's much more – I, I got sent to a tornado in um, – it was in Missouri. I'm trying to think of the, the town now, but uh, I think it was Columbia. And um, basically, this tornado had occurred on the 23rd of December. So I got a call at 5 o'clock. We got a crew together. We went out there. So we arrived basically on uh, Christmas Eve morning. And uh, it was a three dead 
you know, houses destroyed situation. There were first responders on the scene, but that was about it. And, and that one really hit hard because there were people who were, you know, it was Christmas and these people were like digging through stuff. And, and, um, and, and also, you know, as a weather person, it's interesting. That wasn't, that was tough for me because that's not what I do. I think a, a lot of reporters could go in there and stick a mic in someone's face and ask them about it. And that was very difficult for me. I could talk to people, but I didn't really at that moment want to say, hey, do you also want to be you know, on national TV uh, about this? So it was interesting. It showed me um, in weather, you don't have to do that very often. And, uh, but that one, that one stuck with me because of the timing and um, the intensity of it. And frankly, in a lot of places where these tornado hit, tornadoes hit a lot of times are not wealthy areas so that really that does make it worse too is that it's not like oh yeah i'm sure they have insurance and someone to stay with or it's not you know it's not always the case it also seems like these things hit and then people are dealing with this years and years later i mean we're still dealing with the aftermath of katrina right and this newest thing that has happened in haiti i mean they're still dealing with i think an earthquake that happened quite a long time ago. Yeah. So these natural disasters, they happen, and then it's not like we have FEMA that can come in in the United States and just clean everything up, right. and then it's all good. Right. Well, and in and, and New Orleans, too, you know, part of what happened is people don't want to move back. So even once you uh, try to shore it up a little bit and clean it up, we went there last year, and um, yeah, there's still entire areas that are abandoned, and I think it's just a matter of... Um, it was too scarring of an experience for people to want to be back in the same spot. Um, and the truth is, as much as New Orleans protects itself with levees, it's still vulnerable. It's still very low. It still sits on the Gulf of Mexico. So at the end of the day, um, you could build a house there, and I, you can't guarantee that's not going to happen again. And it, I think that scares people. And in other countries, yeah, it's, I mean, it's often even worse. They have no kind of um, relief mechanism and even um, Wilma hit down towards um, the Yucatan Peninsula years ago. And I remember we had gone uh, on vacation in that area like four years later. And it was still, other than they had rebuilt the tourist stuff fast, but the rest of it was still leveled. So, yeah, I mean, it takes years. And sometimes when these things pile up is when places, uh, you know, don't recover. Which is why I like snow, because snow doesn't really, doesn't devastate the same way. It might be annoying and there are car accidents, but other than that... You can have some fun with snow and it's not, you know, as bad. I'm thinking about um, the ice storm that many of us lived through, and I can't remember what year. It might be maybe 1996, 98, yeah. somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah, so I'm not great with dates. I always date it by, like, how old my children were. Okay. <laughs> I know I had small children. You were in the children. ballpark. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, and even though... Um, we don't have the same devastation from snowstorms. I mean, this was an ice storm and this was major and massive. And I was working at the hospital as a resident at that time. And there were people who were coming in. They had no way to plug their oxygen machines into the wall. You know, they, they, they had no heat. They had no electricity. Yeah. And we were all impacted by it. And I was amazed by the number of people who came from other places, specifically like the electrical companies that just sent people up here yeah. oh, until yeah. it was all taken care of. Yep. Have you experienced that same, uh, I guess, um, good-heartedness and compassion and willingness to help? Yeah, I think um, 
in most areas they do band together and, and you're right ice storms are really the biggest thing I mean other than us somehow getting clipped with a, a, a tropical system which is pretty hard to do ice storms are, nobody likes those right nobody is like oh great there's ice I can use my snowmobile or whatever like this you know those I think for the northeast that's your most vulnerable crippling kind of thing and it's usually in a power outage standpoint but yeah I mean there's they have these systems so when I first got out of school, I was forecasting at this company in Massachusetts, and they do aviation forecasting. They also do energy forecasting. And so we'd have clients like Louisiana. We had one, Energy. We'd call them and tell them, all right, this is your risk of power outages, blah, blah, blah. They have this kind of co-op situation where it's almost like a fire department where they say, all right, this is a six alarm. We need to send all these crews. And then the expectation is, you know, if it happens in their area, you will send people too. And that, that helps a lot because sometimes they can't get the trucks out of the way and their trucks are actually disabled. That's one of the biggest things we try to do for them forecasting is they would say, do we need to move this fleet like out of the zone and then come back later? Because if they get destroyed, then we can't help. Um, but yeah, I mean, I see a lot of good stuff out of these disasters, no doubt. Um, people would still rather it not be a thing, but we, we worked with this guy who was um, basically had made a lot of money at a young age and he went into just creating this fleet in which they go to these disasters. Um, it's called First Response Team of America, and they basically just go, and it's a nonprofit, and they do these things, and they help, obviously, these bigger organizations that are there to begin with. Um, and uh, so I give people like that a lot of credit, and they need it. I mean, people need help in these scenarios, and part of it is mental, too. Like, uh, a lot of the stuff they do is just pick-me-up stuff, even if it's, you know, people are going through rubble and the Red Cross will come by with sandwiches. You know, it's like, it seems so small, but at the time it's, you know, that's, that helps and it kind of brings people together. Yeah. I'm wondering how the whole conversation about climate change has impacted you because it, you've been, you were educated during the time where we started talking about this and you're right. like, you're there. And I'm not right. sure that everybody who's done meteorology over the years has really been at the front line the way that you are now. Yeah. And we talk about climate refugees, for example, you know, people who left the um, Katrina stricken areas and never went back, essentially. Yeah. Some people would call them climate refugees. What right. are your thoughts on that? You know, so my thing is, well, first and foremost, the earth is warming. This, I don't know why people even debate that. That's just, that's just the science of it. Um, and you can argue if you want what or whom is causing it, but but really doesn't change that much other than, you know, I likened it to, um, you know, maybe you, wear a, maybe you wear a bike helmet and you don't feel like you need to. Well, what's the worst case if you're wearing that helmet? And that's kind of the same thing with some of the emission things they're doing based on global warming. What What is the argument for polluting more being a good thing? So, you know, so either way, uh, that needs to be curbed. I think what happens with global warming is it becomes this political thing. And you know, there's a lot of things like this in the country that shouldn't be political, and they are, and, and that's near the top. Um, but I, you know, I still know meteorologists who, who kind of push back on, on the whole thing, um, and it's because it's become divided. But in my opinion, obviously we're warming. I don't like to attribute it to specific events, though. That's the only time I have a problem, and you'll see it in the media, and I can say that because I'm in it. But if you say... Um, say uh, Hurricane Matthew turns into this big thing and hits the East Coast, and well, is this global warming? I mean, you know, there, there's been a lot of big hurricanes over the years. And even if you look at New Orleans, the area that didn't flood as bad was the French Quarter. That was the oldest part of the city. And guess what? That's because they built it on the relative hill of that area because they were aware they were at sea level. So I think, you know, trying to attribute specific events to global warming, I think, is you're getting in trouble with that. You're talking about 
general rise in temperature, which is happening every year, um, melting of, um, you know, polar melting, all that, that's real. But I don't like them to say tornado outbreak, that's because of um, global warming, because now you're mixing meteorology with, with climate. And they're not the same thing. That's why I'm not, I can't go out and argue one way or another in global warming, because that's not my specific zone. You would understand it in a doctor's standpoint, it's, you have specialties and, and being a, being a meteorologist is you're doing, you know, five to 15 days out, you're not doing years and years. So you have to defer to, to people who do that for a living. And I think that I just wish it'd be less political because um, it's in any, everybody's best interest to try to fix this problem, you know. I think that's a great answer. <laughs> I, I like the thoughtfulness that you put into that. Well, I encourage people to, uh, well, obviously watch Keith Carson on WCSH6, um, I guess six in this area, and other two would be up in the Bangor area. Yes, we take over their signal, yep. And to maybe learn a little bit more about what Keith does and meteorology, and uh, this has really been a fascinating conversation. I actually wish that we had another whole hour, because I feel like (laughs) there's so much that we could talk about. This has been really great. I've been speaking with Keith Carson, who, with 10 years of media experience, has covered everything from tornado aftermath in Oklahoma to blizzards in Chicago, and has now returned here to WCSH 6 and 2 TV here in the Portland and Bangor area. And um, I appreciate your coming in and having this conversation. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it and uh, happy to be back in Maine. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland, easy, is how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. Love Main Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. You have been listening to Love Main Radio, show number 275, Faces of Main Broadcasting. Our guests have included Pat Callahan and Keith Carson. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Main Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Faces of Maine broadcasting show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. And if you are listening to this on December 25th and you celebrate this holiday, Merry Christmas. May you have a bountiful life. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by The Front Room, The Corner Room, The Grill Room, and Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Chef Harding Lee Smith's restaurants where atmosphere, great service, and palate-pleasing options are available to suit any culinary mood. 
For more information, go to theroomsportland.com. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasson. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.